Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast, where we are here to become better habitat managers. I'm your host, Jared Van Heese, and my trusty, not rusty co-host, Brian Hallblatt's on the line. What's up, Brian? Merry Christmas, killer. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, well, I've been calling you killer for a while now, but it's uh, it's almost Christmas. We're, you know, hunting season's winding down. I'm not done yet. Um, I know you aren't either. Um, what you been up to the past few days? I'm uh, just trying to get these last couple days of work out of the way for the year i got enough vacation time scheduled. I'll be off the last two weeks of the year. I'm going to get a few late-season hunts in and try to fill some tags in Ohio. I'm tagged out in PA, which feels pretty good. So uh try to make something happen over at the Ohio farm. Very nice. Yeah, I know um, you got the whole rest of the year off. That's pretty awesome. I'd, I'm not too far from that. i, I got to work you know, probably half of that, but... Um, I'm ready to get this week behind me, that's for darn sure, with all the, you know, full work week and everything people are trying to cram in the last week of the year. I'm sure everybody can relate to that. Right. And I want to get out there and get each of my daughters out one more time, hammer a, a doe or two, um, or a surprise buck. You never know how it can go. So, I know we haven't covered... Uh, your Pennsylvania buck story, Mr. Tagged Out, or my uh, Michigan buck story, but we're going to do that in the next episode um, right after this one. But we have yeah, a good one. Did some teasing on the social media, sent some pictures <laughs> off, but we'll uh, dangle that carrot for a little bit longer. Yeah, the story is coming, guys. It'll be on the next episode here. Um, we have a great episode this week. Who we got, Brian? None other than Mr. Wired. To hunt, Mark Kenyon, Mr. Wired to hunt. Yep, we've been uh, following Mark for well, at least since 2014 or 13. Uh, I'm not sure when everything started with his brand or whatnot, but you and I have been 
loyal listeners forever on uh, the Wired to Hunt side of things, and it should be a pretty good episode, B. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I just picked up his new book. Looking forward to talking about that and so many other projects he's got going on. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have caught the Back 40 series over on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Looking forward to getting a little more background on that and uh, appreciate him coming on. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I'd like to pick his brain on on the habitat management side of things as well. Um, He's in a very similar situation to to where I'm at in terms of property location and the pressure and um, how we hunt. And, uh, you know, it's the same with you, though, out in PA. I mean, you and I are very similar in in Ohio on how we hunt and our property situation is being pressured and smaller and and that type of thing. So I'm, I'm really excited about this one. Definitely, man. Let's get him on the phone. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. We have uh, Brian Hallblad, my co-host on the line, and a very special guest tonight, Mark Kenyon. How you doing, Mark? I'm good. Thank you guys for having me on the show. Yeah. Yeah, not... thanks for coming on. Yes, thank you. We've uh, we've been long-time listeners, so it's pretty cool that, uh, you know, you come on and, and talk some deer habitat with us. Yeah, I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate you listening to what I've been doing over the years. It's fun to have the roles reversed. I always I always get a kick out of being a guest on the show, and I can kind of kick up my feet and relax and answer questions and, and chat and just have some fun without the stress of planning a conversation and navigating a conversation to get to the places you need to get. Um, you've got the tough job now, gentlemen, so <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. I, I've gone back and listened to these podcasts you know, after we recorded them and thought, I don't even remember hearing that part of the, the conversation before because I was probably looking at something else, so. Right, right. But speaking of, uh, you know, Wired to Hunt and and you being from, from Michigan like, like I am and a lot of my listeners or our listeners, um, you mind telling us a brief background about you, Wired to Hunt, uh, what you're doing these days with Meat Eater. Um, most people probably know, but if they don't, let's give them maybe a Cliff Notes version. Yeah, yeah. So, grew up in western Michigan, over in Grand Rapids area. Uh, Grew up in a family that was all about hunting and fishing. That was what we did for fun. That's what we did the weekends. That's what we did all summer. Uh, Hunting season was the thing for our family. So, we had a little 40-acre property up in the northwestern part of the state where I learned to hunt and shoot a gun and do all that stuff. Um, And that's where I hunted for, for a long time. Uh, my family was pretty traditional when it came to hunting. There wasn't a lot of strategy. There wasn't a lot of deep thought into it. It was more so a cultural thing. Um, that's It was all about getting up there, being with your family and friends, sitting down next to a tree and seeing what happened. Um, so it wasn't until, I don't know, high school, I started kind of going off on my own and trying to figure this stuff out for myself, picked up bow hunting, uh, kind of self-taught myself, that whole thing, and started bow hunting our family's three-acre lot behind my house in Grand Rapids, and uh, that's where I bow hunted until, you know, I don't know, college, I guess. Um, and after college, uh, you know, to make what's a long story very short, um, I decided I wanted to try to take my love for the outdoors and my love for hunting and, and try to build it into something that maybe, you know, could be more than just a hobby. So I started this website called Wired to Hunt. Uh, which over the years eventually grew into uh, a large whitetail hunting brand 
um, and then launched a podcast and started writing for all the hunting magazines and eventually got to the point where I was able to you know, do that full time. And then over the last couple of years now, I have merged Wired to Hunt into the Meat Eater Network, which is a company founded by Steve Ranella that I'm now a part of. And we produce a whole bunch of podcasts and TV shows and articles and, and all sorts of hunting, fishing, conservation, and culinary content. So I, I do all that. And then I also just wrote a book about public lands and all the cool stuff we can do out there, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, and, and really the story of how we got these places. So that is my life in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good Cliff Notes version there, Mark. <laughs> I, I try. That was good. Yeah, I know uh, Brian and I have been following your stuff, well, since, I don't know, at least 2014, maybe 13, um, when the podcast launched, and then Meat Eater, he, didn't he have a show on uh, Discovery or something way before? Yeah, he had a TV show on the Travel Channel. That was called, it, okay. uh, Yeah, it's called The Wild Within. Okay. I think that's where I first, first heard about Steve. I know he's from... West Michigan as well. We're all in the same little neighborhood over there, so it's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah, man, there's something in the water out there. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I wish I could locate what that was and uh, attract a bigger deer with it, too. So, yeah. Bottle that up, you'd make a million dollars. Exactly. Well, what are you doing now at Meat Eater? What's your most current, you know, last six months look like over there? Well, uh, my... My job at Mediator is, is kind of twofold. I still run the Wired Hunt podcast, which is, you know, a, a major whitetail-focused hunting podcast where we dive into strategies and issues and stories around deer and deer hunting. So that's the biggest thing I do. Um, but more recently, also started producing and hosting a new show for Mediator, which is called Back 40. And this is a new show which airs on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Uh, it's all about uh, private land conservation and hunting. Um, and so it's kind of a, a long story if you want to hear about what that's actually about in detail. But um, to keep it short, those are the two biggest things I do. And then I also do some writing and, and collaboration on various other projects that we've got going on too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd like to hear little bit of the backstory on the back 40 you want to go into detail on that yeah definitely so the back 40 is sort of a different take on a typical whitetail story um as you guys know very well being in the whitetail space and i myself um a lot of folks in our world have this dream of getting a piece of ground someday and growing big bucks, and having the the hunting paradise of your dreams. I have had that dream myself. And it's it's an awesome thing to strive for and to shoot for, and I get a kick out of learning about how to do that kind of stuff, and I love the resources like what you guys have out there for teaching people how to do that. Um, I've tried to do that to a degree on the Wired Hunt podcast too. Uh, So we decided we wanted to create a deer hunting show, but we wanted to have a different angle on it. We wanted to take a slightly different perspective. So what we decided to do is we were going to buy a piece of ground 
we were going to find a small piece of property somewhere in a kind of unassuming part of the country and document everything from the beginning to the end of learning this property and trying to manage and improve this property and then eventually give a hunt away on the property, so share this property with someone and then ultimately give the farm away entirely. So that, that made it pretty unique too, but what really was probably the biggest thing that has caused both challenges and great opportunities to learn is that we wanted to approach this place not just with a deer focus, so not just trying to kill the biggest bucks ever, um, but really trying to improve and manage this property for biodiversity, for native species, for, for the whole suite of wildlife and plant life that calls this part of Michigan home. Um, so we bought a farm in uh, Michigan, and it's 64 acres, and I am now tasked with trying to understand what's on this place, what could be on this place, um, how can we restore it, how can we, what can we learn along the way about private land conservation and conservation programs and the threats to private land out there? You know, there's a tremendous amount of open space developed and, you know, gone year after year. I think something like 2 million acres a year of open space are developed in America. Wow. So we're losing these places. We're losing little farms and woodlots and patches of CRP, all this stuff that's important wildlife habitat and that's important hunting ground for a lot of folks too that stuff's disappearing with the you know the relentless march of strip malls and housing developments so we wanted to take this project and and use it as an opportunity to talk about some of those things too um, while of course still trying to make a little farm that can make for some great hunting too and that's been that's been the the crux of the whole thing the rub is the balance how do you do all this stuff how do you make it great for hunting, but also great for bees? How do you make it so that I can see a mature buck out there, but also take guys out to go squirrel hunt sometimes or take a bunch of new hunters out and have new people out there every couple weeks? Um, it's forced me to approach this whole project in a different and very unique way, and, and we've tried to document that with this show and on the Wired Hunt podcast and, and all the other things we're doing around it. So that is my long and rambling explanation of the back 40. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's really important how you touched on the bigger picture because we all love antlers. We love chasing mature white-tailed bucks, and that's sort of what we all get focused on. But it's nice to see you guys taking a different approach, and I think I know Jared and I are, and a lot of our listeners are, starting to look at the big picture and thinking of how everything's connected to the deer. It's not just about the deer. It's like you said about the pollinators. It's about the spoil. Guys are getting into more no-tilling methods. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a fantastic uh, approach that you guys are doing a really good job of portraying. Yeah, thank you. It's 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 been really cool for me personally to to get to just be forced into all these learning moments. Um, and I'm I'm you know we're just right smack dab in the middle of it now still, but I've I've already taken so much from this project, and and my hope is just to be able to share even a tenth of what I've learned with the rest of the folks out there, if I could do that, that would be a success. Sure. So how many uh, projects or how many properties did you look at before you got it narrowed down to the back 40? Oh, I, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think it was, I think I saw 12 or 13 properties in person that I visited. 
um, and, you know, bounced emails and phone calls back and forth on God knows how many more and looked, you know, searched every single website I could possibly find that might have planned. So it was it was a whole lot of places. There was a couple spots where I thought we had it, and it got one got pulled out from underneath us. One um, had an offer, and then the guy said, "Okay, it's falling through. Put in your offer." So we were in the process of doing that. And the last minute, he said, "Ah, oh, I was wrong. The the original offer is good." So we had a whole bunch of different things go on there that uh, made it a, a stressful process there for a bit. But uh, ultimately, I kind of got lucky and. Um, through a little bit of happenstance, just bumped into this piece by accident, and it was the best thing I found yet. So, now, did you have your search narrowed down to a certain area? Yeah, um, we wanted something within a reasonable driving distance from where I live because I would be the main steward of the property and would have to be there quite a bit. Um, so, somewhere in centralish Michigan um, was kind of the wheelhouse we were looking at. And so, so that was the general zone. And then I had a whole bunch of criteria um, that I was looking for that was more particular to the project itself and what we were hoping to do. You know, we wanted to have – it had to be small. We didn't want some great big huge property, both because that just wouldn't fit um, what we were trying to achieve, but also because we had, a you know, a, a, a budget. Everyone's got a budget. So we had a sure. – we had a reasonable budget we had to work with, so I had to find something that fit that budget that was small, but also hunted or would, that was situated in a, in, in a way that it would, you know, feel bigger, that it would hunt bigger, that it would serve the purposes that we would need it to. We wanted something that was in a good, quote-unquote, neighborhood, because uh, one of the things is that we wanted to have the opportunity to hunt and kill mature bucks on the farm, so I wanted to be in a place where that kind of animal was around, which, as you guys know, isn't everywhere in Michigan. Um, so we were looking for things like great cover or surrounding cover on the neighbors. So in the case of the property we ended up with, it had a great big swamp in the middle that connected into a larger drainage on properties toward north and south. So that's something that I always get really excited about here in our home state because that's the kind of feature that I think can help some young bucks make it to older age classes. Um, so that was something I keyed in on. Um, I wanted something that had a diversity of habitat. Also, for, for one, because that's good for wildlife and good for hunting. Uh, for two, it also presented us different opportunities for the, the project as far as learning opportunities. So on this farm, we had old fields, we had some timber, we had some wetlands, we had some native prairie. So all these different types of habitat would be great for me to learn about and for us as a group to learn about and share on the program. Um, so that was something we were interested in. Um, you know, we needed something that uh, was, you know, accessible. So you got to think about how to get in and out. you got to think about, you know, how is it going to hunt as far as road frontage, as far as the impact of neighbors. Um, you know, all the different things you think about from a hunting perspective, I was keying in on. Uh, then all the things as far as buying a farm, you know, making sure there wasn't some crazy red flag something that was going to jump up and kick us in the butt someday, like, uh, I don't right. know. I mean, there's all these funky things that you start to worry about when you're about to sign the dotted line. Is there something I don't know about this farm? Is there, like, a dead body buried on it that I'm going to get sued for? <laughs> um, but so at one, you know, once we got close to the finish line, it was all those types of things I was looking at. Um, but at a really high level, I think those are some of the main criteria I was, I was looking at. 
Sure. Well, you got off to a great start. You had our friend Jake Elinger out. Mm -hmm. He's been gracious enough to join us for a couple of episodes here. And uh, walk us through that. What what was that like having him at your place? And what what are you going to be targeting here moving forward? Yeah, so we had a whole bunch of different people come out to the farm um, because we wanted to get this diverse array of perspectives. So we had folks come out and look at it uh, that are, you know, deer habitat consultants, people that approach it the same way that probably you guys would or that I would, um, but with their own expertise. So Jake came out, um, Jeff Sturgis came out, and, you know, they walked the farm with us and gave us their ideas for, hey, I think you should put food plots here, you should plant switchgrass here, you should, you know, plant more cedars here and plant CRP here, you know, all the different, I mean, we could go into the details of specific things they recommended if you want, but we got a very deer-focused perspective from them, how to how to hold and kill bigger deer. That's what we talked about with those guys. Then we also brought in um, an ecologist from the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and he came in and gave us the perspective of someone focused on native plant species. And he helped us identify, okay, we've got a lot of invasive species in these old fields, but we actually have a really cool prairie remnant habitat in one section of the farm where there are a number of native prairie species that might only be found here in the entire county that we're in. So that was really cool. And he talked to us about how we could help restore that prairie and the benefits that kind of habitat has for wildlife. Um, We brought in people from a farming background who came to this thinking about this This used to be a farm. Um, so we had folks that came in with that perspective and looking at, okay, how do you make this thing great for wildlife, but also look at the possibilities from an agriculture perspective. Uh, we've had folks come in that are experts on pollinators and, oh, gosh, I mean, a whole uh, land use researcher came in and, and shared the things he's studying in California and Texas and how to manage and monitor wildlife populations and plant life um, diversity, kind of took a look at our property and shared with us ideas for monitoring those things. Um, so had all these different people come in, but Jake and Jeff from the deer perspective, which I know is probably what you guys um, are particularly interested in at least, <laughs> they came in and did the whole walkabout and both of them, they've got a different approach. Um, you know, Jake came out and did the walk, and as we went through with stopping here and suggesting this idea, stopping here and talking about, um, you know, high-level things where he, he saw focus points. Like, this would be a really great place to be thinking about a sanctuary of some kind. These would be some places that food would be pretty useful, uh, but think about how you're going to access and hunt them. Uh, Jeff took a little bit different approach in that he came out, he mostly did a walkthrough, without providing a whole lot of um, insight right at the moment, although he did some. But more so, he, he does the whole walkthrough, comes back, and then takes like an hour or two and draws up a specific plan. So he drew an image over top of the map of our property with exactly where he thinks you should put food plots, where you should put bedding area improvements, where you should cut trails, where you should hang your stands, um, and then presents you with this plan at the end. Um, so both have their, have their own unique approach to it. They're both really helpful. Um, what I can tell you, though, is that both of them had wildly different ideas, <laughs> as well as every single other person we've had that has come out to the property. Everyone tells you to do something different. <laughs> um, That's interesting. Yeah, and, and I'd tell you that from my experience with this, as well as, and you guys know this, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, but 
talking to hundreds and hundreds of the best deer hunters across the country and deer managers, habitat consultants and whatnot. Everyone's got a different way of doing it. Everyone's got their own angle, their own two cents on it. And, and what's cool is that there's a whole lot of ways to skin the cat. All these different ways can work. It's just kind of a matter of, of looking at what the right fit is for your goals and, and your circumstances. So I'm in the process now of trying to figure that out. i gotta, I got to filter all these ideas I've got this year and decide, okay, what are we actually going to do in year two, which is when I can actually really start doing work. So, Mark, before we um, move into the, the year two stuff, I have a question back about Jake and, and Jeff and even the other experts you had out there. Were there different you know, two or three different things that stuck out to you after any of these people walked the property with you where you were just like, wow, I did not know that. I'm going to implement that. Or What were a couple of key things that, that really stuck with you? Well, I think one of the biggest things was related to that native prairie I mentioned to you. Um, the fact that we had this remnant ecosystem that has been mostly plowed up or paved over across a lot of the Midwest. We still had some of those species that, you know, used to cover this entire, a lot of the state in the the mid, the lower Midwest, at least, the farmland that's now farmland, at least. So uh, learning about that was really cool, learning that we had that. This is, this is great habitat for all sorts of bird species and deer and pollinators and bugs and, and everything really thrives in these prairie ecosystems. So the fact we had that was great. Um, the question, the dilemma then became, how do you manage it? How do you try to, how do you try to restore it? And here's the here's the rub, was that the ecologist came in and said he came from the perspective of that should be priority number one, restore that prairie. So his recommendation was, go into this area, and remove anything that is not native prairie, and then burn everything. So the things that were in this area, excuse me, that were not native prairie were a bunch of cedars and a bunch of shrubs and bushes like autumn olive and some other things like that. Now, I know that autumn olive is uh, it's an invasive non-native species around here, but when you look at this area and you look at it from a deer perspective, this is a ridge system that had all this big blue stem grass, this prairie grass, but then it had all these cedars, bushes, buckthorn, and autumn olive, and it is just a big buck paradise. I mean, it is the coolest, thick, nasty transition cover area ridge with points dropping to a swamp. I mean, it is bucky, bucky, bucky stuff. And he was telling us to get rid of it all and just make it an open grass hillside. Well, that didn't seem like a good idea to me from a deer perspective. And when Jeff and Jake both came in, they both said, oh, no, 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 don't get rid of all that stuff. Maybe you do some patches. But if you just if you clear all the stuff out of here, you just destroyed your your best piece of of cover like that. Right. So so that was a big and it still is one of these hmm kind of situations. Like how do you balance these things? How do you go about restoring it but still maintaining balance across the other goals like deer hunting and deer cover and all those different things? Um, the old fields raise a big question too because again this was. This property itself is comprised of, like I said, 64 acres. Um, there's about 20-some acres in the middle that are that swamp and then that ridge with all the prairie stuff I talked about. But then the rest of it is a series of old farm fields. There's about 30, 35 acres of these old farm fields. 
and right now it's just kind of overgrown with some invasive weeds. I've uh, got some mare's tail, I don't know, probably 80% of the fields are just almost monoculture mare's tail. Oh, wow. So it's pretty lousy. Um, it's pretty much a deer and wildlife desert most of the day, most of the year. So, yeah, and I don't even know if there's like a takeaway here. It's more so like a set of questions, which was there's 10 different ways we can go about doing something with these old fields. But point number one is that you have to do something with these old fields. Everyone said you have to do something with these fields. I just have 10 different ideas of what to do with them. Right. Um, so we can burn them. We could spray them and drill in some native grass species. Um, we could plant them in food plots and then screen them in with, with switchgrass. Uh, we could go a traditional ag route and rent out some of it to a local farmer and put ag in, and then it makes it easy for us, and we make a little bit of rental income off of it, and then you still got 20 acres of standing corn or something most of the time that's great covering food. Um, we could just let it go and plant a bunch of trees in there. Everybody had different ideas. Um, and, and I wish I could tell you I had some great epiphany after all of this, <laughs> but I don't. Um, I'm just left with pages and pages and pages of notes and about four weeks from this point on to mid-January where I need to make some decisions. Yeah. <laughs> Habitat season is about here. And, uh, yeah, I can't imagine the notes that you have on your desk from all these different experts out there. I mean, yeah. And, and all those are, are good things, right? They're all – it all depends on what your goals are, I guess, and how much time you have and your financial situation, like, you know, with our listeners. You know, the, the, renting, the renting the, the ag out you – know, Standing corn right now is pretty dynamite in Michigan. Um, but then again, um, I don't know, the old field and the the big blue stem or the you get some goldenrod in there with some nice shrubs or maybe a forestry program. Like you said, they're all good things. Yeah. That's just interesting. On, hey, you have a few different fields on that property, so you could maybe do some of each, or is it more you're going to pick one direction for the property itself? So, so I, I am going to do a little bit of um, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. That's mostly based off of just the location of these fields, because there's only access from one side of the property and one kind of thin slice of the property where there's road access. So it's a little tricky from that perspective. And because of that, you know, I don't want to put some really significant you know, piece of cover or food that I want deer focused on right there at the front where I have to walk in and out, you know. So I have to think about things like access and entry and exit to the farm to hunt it. Um, so I'm very much going to take a diverse perspective as far as the types of things we do, but I'm going to make the decisions about where I do these things very based on the hunting application because that's the only, like, thing we're doing out there that could really mess things up or, or really help you when it comes down to where you place these things. So those front fields that we have to walk by all the time, that's probably going to be somewhere where I focus on some of the native grasses or things that will be particularly good for, you know, birds and bees and pollinators and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not going to put a food plot smack dab up in the front and spook deer every time I go passing by. So that's an area that makes sense. Don't put a major attraction food source right there. Don't try to create the best bedding area in the world right where you have to walk in and out. Those places, those kinds of improvements, I do want to make, but it's going to make more sense to place those at the back of the farm 
somewhere that's hard to get to anyways, that I'm only going to rarely go in or near to it to hunt on specific times and wins. Um, so I'm trying to have a strategic perspective as to where I put these things. So I, I'm definitely going to be putting more food in the farm. How exactly we're going to do that, I'm still undecided. But it needs higher quality and more diverse and a greater quantity of food that, that all wildlife will enjoy, but deer in particular. Um, we need to get some more cover in those old fields. So in some places, like I said, we're going to do some kind of native grass. Um, in some of those places, I think we're going to try to do some tree planting. Um, and in some of these places, we're just going to have to get some fast screening cover up um, to block things visually at least a little bit better than they were this year. So that might be switchgrass or that might be switchgrass for the long run, but for the short term, something like Egyptian wheat. Um, Perfect. Or something along those lines. Yeah, there's an area, for example, where there's a house and a barn, like, right butting up to the property line. And they're back there, and they're driving their truck and their trailer around, and they're making noise, and they're burning tires and doing all sorts of crap right on the edge of our spot. Um, it would be a great place to hunt because it's close to the edge of our swamp, but we have these people doing that. So I need to think strategically there about how do I somehow block that as best as possible off from the rest of the farm. Um, so that's going to be one of those places where probably some kind of serious screening is going to occur. Um, I'm not going to put a major attraction feature right next to this dude who's throwing, you know, truck tire bonfires every night. Jeez, yeah, seriously. <laughs> truck tires. Really? Burning tires? Yeah. Wow. He's doing all sorts of stuff. Yep. That's so you know you know how it is small yeah. properties in a place like Michigan you just you just sure. you just work with the hand or dealt and um, there's always a lot of other people there's a lot of other hunters I've seen that like seemingly every person now all around us knows what's going on and know everything that we're doing um, and uh, you know that could be that's that's a it's just the nature of the beast and b you know it's a good thing that we you know we're meeting these people and developing relationships and that's awesome. Um, but, you know, it does just create challenges, and there's just lots of other folks around, and you're all trying to do your own thing. And, um, you know, that's just the name of the game when it comes to hunting small properties. And that's that, that can be fun if you go into it with the right set of expectations and just kind of, I guess, a, an added, a positive attitude, I think, is, is the most important thing probably. Yeah, for sure. And that's uh, that's one thing that a lot of people are able to relate to you, like our listeners. You guys are working on a 64-acre property. It's not like you're run not buying up a giant chunk of land and not not having these struggles. That that makes it a lot more relatable for everybody else too, which I think everybody enjoys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like I said, it's it's relatable. It's if I wasn't doing this with media, if I was just trying to do this myself solo, this is the kind of place I probably would have ended up with. Um, sure. It's really raw. It's not extra special. It was kind of rough this first year, but it has the bones. It's got the potential. And that's kind of all you can ask for when you're looking for a place to start out with if you've got that dream of improving it. Um, you almost don't want it to be too spectacular right at the get-go because then where would you go from there? <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed you approach a lot of things like that. Even your hunting, you like you like a little bit of a challenge in there. And, Aaron, yeah. uh, right there with you. Yes. Type two fun. I want I want it to be a struggle in the moment, and then it'll be that much sweeter in the end when it comes together. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and speaking of uh, getting into it and 
and the different challenges you were facing. Walk us through uh, from the closing time to you must have did something right. You got a pretty nice buck on there this year. So uh, give us a little insight on what led up to that. Well, I wish I could tell you that it was some <laughs> tremendous strategic planning on my part that led to me killing that buck. Um, but honestly, there was a lot of luck that went into it. Um, because here's the thing. This is not like your normal situation as far as if I had bought this farm myself and closed on April 29th and then was going to start hunting it on October 1st, um, if it was just me doing that, this would have been a wildly different situation than what I actually had this year. Um, you know, I would have been working from May 1st all the way through the end of August on all sorts of things. I would have been gung-ho, doing 10,000 projects. Um, I would have made, improved the cover as best I possibly could. I went to the best food sources exactly where I wanted as best I possibly could. Uh, I would have a few key hunting locations set up, and then I wouldn't have touched it again from, you know, mid-August until October 1st. And October 1st, I would have hunted a day or two, and... If things didn't work out, then I probably would have pulled back and done some long-range scouting and just been really careful. And and unless some really hot intel told me I should go in there and strike, I probably would have kind of bided my time, maybe hunting the edges for does or something until late October, pretty rough. And then I would have started hunting hard myself. Um, But if it was just me and if it was 64 acres, that's how I would approach it. And then for a week or two in November, I would have hit it really hard. Um, And all those well-planned food plots and bedding areas and, the specific stand locations I picked out would have led to me killing this buck that I knew was going to be there. You know, it would have worked out just exactly how I planned. Um, almost none of that ended up being the case. What did happen instead was that we closed on this property at the end of April, and then the reality of actually launching a project like this set in as far as what we had to do from, like, the documentation side. So we had to have a camera crew. We had to have equipment. We had to have whole plan in place for how to produce basically a television show like this and all the content we're developing around it, all the crazy logistics, how we line up all the guests and all the people that are going to be out here and all the travel and yada, 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 stuff that isn't really interested in probably to anyone listening. No one cares about that. They just want to learn about, you know, <laughs> the property, but it was just the reality of the situation I was in. So basically what happened is that from April 29th, until basically August, almost nothing was done um, because we didn't have a camera crew set up. We didn't have just a whole bunch of logistical stuff wasn't in place. So what ended up happening is that basically August, the beginning of August arrived, and now I've got 28 days before I have to take off for a hunt in North Dakota, and then September arrives. So within that 28-day period, we had to – bring in, I don't know, five different guests to come in. We had to have these two different habitat consultants, the ecologist, the person, um, someone else. I can't remember right now. It's all kind of a blur. So we had to plan time for all the different people to come out. And then, oh, it's Steve Ranella, and I can't remember who else, but all these different people had to come out and see the farm, and we had to film their ideas and their thoughts and touring it and all that. And only after all that was done could we then actually do any work. And that meant any kind of habitat improvement we wanted to do, and then all the hunting prep we would have to do, which ended up meaning that we had only maybe five days to do any kind of real work on the farm as far as any kind of habitat improvement and a couple days to do any kind of hunting. 
because all this other logistical stuff took up so much time. So I wish we could have done a thousand things, but all we managed to do was uh, I tried to plant some no-till food. I did do – I tried one project without the camera crew because I just said, screw it, we need some screening cover out here because there's a bunch of wide open fields. If we don't have screens, if we don't have some kind of way to visually chunk up all these big fields, nothing's going to want to go out there in daylight. They're not going to go stand out in the middle of these wide open 15-acre fields. So I, I wanted to have uh, Egyptian wheat screens all throughout to block it. Um, but one of the things I was trying to implement this year on this property was um, a more regenerative agriculture approach to planting crops and food plots. I wanted to, like we talked about, try to improve our soil, try to do some things to reduce, reduce herbicide use, and uh, so we took a no-till approach. Um, so I tried a no-till planting of screens, you know, in the typical time you would do that. I can't remember it was last week of May or first week of June, somewhere exactly. in that ballpark. And it was essentially 100% failure. I mean, it was just a bomb, maybe a 97% failure. I had a couple places where some came up. But basically the screens were utter bust. And then in August, then it was, okay, we don't really have any screening cover, but let's try to plant a no-till set of food plots through here. And we got a no-till drill, and I tried a blend of a handful of different things. Again, trying this different approach. I've never done it this way. I've always done um, – I usually take, like, a, a monoculture strip approach to my food plots. Um, so I was a big fan of, of grains like oats and uh, wheat and then strips of brassicas, turnips, kale, rape, etc. And that has been dynamite for me as far as early season traction all the way to late season traction. I've got a system. It works to a T, and it just, it's just – it's great. But this year I thought, ah, I'm going to try this no-till thing. I'm going to do a whole blend. I'm going to start doing this rotation like – Dr. Grant Woods talks about his whole Buffalo approach. Mm -hmm, Um, So I'm going to do that. And that was like a 75% bust. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the only big improvement we tried, we really tried to do. So, you know, all the stuff that that entails, spraying, mowing, planting. um, And that came in very poorly. Most everything in the blend did not come in. I basically got a lousy oats plot. Um, you know, a handful of these lousy oat plots across the farm. So no screening cover, a lousy oats plot, series of oat plots across the property. Um, and then I, I set up a bunch of spots to hunt for myself from a saddle because that's how I was, I'm doing most of my hunting this year. So I set up a bunch of spots for that. And then at the last minute we decided, you know what? We're going to have more hunters come out and join me on these hunts. Um, so we've got some different things to be able to talk about and different people and different perspectives. So then all of a sudden I'm bringing out all these different guests all hunting season, and they don't want to hunt from the saddle. So I'm setting up ground blinds at the last minute. We're trying to figure out where to put these people. Um, and lo and behold, also Steve and, and our buddy Giannis, we're going to come out and do a squirrel hunt too. Uh, 12 or 13 days before opening day. So this is all really long-winded answer to what you were asking about, which is basically we did a whole bunch of things. A lot of things didn't go right. Um, We had a bunch more people out there than I expected, and I wasn't really prepared for that. So that made the hunting pretty difficult. Um, But in the end, you know, there was a little bit of food. 
there were oats, so we had some does coming in and out and feeding here and there. Um, so the first week of the season, one of our guest hunters killed a doe, killed his first deer with a archery equipment. So that was really cool. That was a fun thing. Um, we saw, you know, we really didn't see a whole lot the month of October. It's just mostly some does and year and a half olds. But once November arrived, um, you know, there'd been one mature buck that was showing up consistently on trail camp. Despite our best efforts with all the people coming in and out and all the craziness, there was one mature buck that was showing up here and there. Um, and I was doing everything I could to manage the hunting pressure, to manage all the people, the camera crew, all of the stuff we were doing. I was trying to find ways to still hunt it as smartly as we possibly could, despite the unique situation. Um, and so I guess that helped us keep this one buck around a little bit. It was this well, he's a pretty, he's a pretty old deer, four, at least four, I think. Uh, big wide eight pointer, big body. And on November 5th, after having not seen very much at all on our rut hunts up to that point, um, I was hunting just inside the edge of this swamp, which we'd left completely untouched since August, hadn't gone to the swamp at all, and um, left that whole ridge system we called it the honey hole. That's where all that native prairie and all the cedars and autumn olive was. We never went into any of that. So we left about a 28-acre area, pretty much untouched as sanctuary from the, from the end of August. So that helped us ensure. Um, so I'm sitting just inside the edge of that sanctuary on November 5th and popping out just above me about 9.30 in the morning. That wide eight busts out of that ridge system, trotting across the field, heading across the farm to the next bedding area is my assumption. And um, I saw him and ripped a, ripped a grunt out and that caused attention. And I got lucky because he was feeling frisky. And came rolling in, ready to fight, and I got a shot. Yeah, congrats on that beautiful buck. Anybody that hasn't seen it yet, you could catch all the stuff we've been talking about on their Back 40 YouTube channel on uh, Meat Eater. Yeah, yeah, thanks. It's it's uh, it's two episodes, that, that whole hunt, we split into two episodes, which are both now available over there on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. So it's, uh, it's cool to see that all come to life. And, and, and I kind of jokingly complain, I don't want to say I'm complaining, but as I was describing to you guys all these million different weird things that were going on, it was challenging and it made things a little bit different. Um, but it's also really cool to see what you can do with that, right? I had a bunch of people come out that made things different, a little challenging, but got to learn a lot of new things, got to share this place with a lot of interesting people. I got to, you know force myself to become a better hunter in certain ways and, and, and kind of stretch what I thought was possible. So it was it was all all worthwhile and, and led to a to a really cool hunt and a cool season. Yeah, Mark, that was a that was a heck of a buck. I'd shoot him in Michigan all day long. I there's no question there. Um Yeah. In in that video were were those trees at the very end of his death run, was he crashing? Could you see those trees moving in the footage? Is that yeah, what, is that, that what that was? Yeah, I was like, is that him crashing into the bushes over there? Holy cow. That's got to be a pretty yeah, cool Yeah, he, he went barreling through like a freight train, and and he, he crashed through those trees, and, and you can see there, like you mentioned at the end, you can see this whole fence rope just like shaking while the trees. Um, he snapped like a three-and-a-half, four-inch diameter tree clear in half that he oh. ran straight into just 
just collapsing to the ground. And I've never seen a blood trail like what we had in this deer, too. Um, it was, you, you you know, you see it on TV shows. You hear people talk about it as like a bucket of paint out there. I, I've never personally experienced that until until this deer. He uh, he laid out a real trail, and he was dead right there in the fence row. Very nice. Yeah, I, I mean, like, for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, you couldn't see the deer running, but you could see the trees moving, so it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's quite a day. It's quite a day. Well, with all these people and, and uh, you got squirrel hunting and everything else, you you know, you're doing, adding this pressure that you normally wouldn't add. Imagine what you'll be able to do, uh, you know, next year when you have your hands on it and get a little earlier start and looking forward to that for sure. Yeah, me too. I mean, to actually have time to do some real work, that's going to be terrific. Yep. So we're, we're coming into this year with much better plan and having learned a whole lot from this past season. So I, I'm, I'm excited because I think we can actually turn this thing around even more. So just a lot of work. Like you mentioned, it, now it's, it's time and money and, and energy and how much can we put into that side of things. And uh, it mostly just falls on me. Hey, yeah, that's true. Um, you ever need a hand, let me know. Just up the road. But uh, Careful with the offer. That's <laughs> a lot of work. That sounds good. No, I'm I'm itching to get started here, too. I think I'm going to start dropping some trees first. Um, what are the first one or two things that you're going to start with uh, for 2020? And then we'll, then we'll move on here. Well, um, I think we need to address those old fields. Um, so we're probably going to bur- do some burning okay. somewhere, especially the, I think that native prairie, I think it's going to make sense to do some burning in there. So one thing I'm pretty certain of is that I do want to try to restore that area, but in a way that preserves the deer uh, habitat there. So instead of removing all the cedars and all the autumn olive and all the buckthorn, we're going to remove patches of it. So there's a lot of areas where that stuff has overgrown all the grassy stuff in there but the patchy cover is the best stuff for deer too right they like that they like having the scattered pockets within the thickness so i'm going to try to create some openings in there that will allow us to bring back some of that prairie um so we'll remove those invasive species like the autumn olive and then we'll probably do a burn through there that'll be an earlier in the year kind of project um and then in the spring we'll also Mm -hmm. look at I still don't know exactly what approach we're going to take to the rest of the old fields, but we're either going to be spraying and planting or burning and spraying and planting or something, putting some kind of native grass blend in there or some some of that and some switchgrass, something along those lines. We're going to have some kind of grass land type habitat in those old fields, which will start early in the year. Um, and then also going to do some tree planting, both young trees and then also buying some probably park grade trees some larger ones that we can use in a few select areas to make some kind of cluster quick structure in those fields um that's something that i'm excited to to try to that sounds awesome um and when you say uh you're you know some more planting some more trees or, or park like trees i always ask this question or try to if i remember at the end of our podcast but so we're talking about trees now. What is uh, Mark Kenyon's favorite tree for hunting or habitat work? Like if you, whether it's when you're sitting in a tree stand or maybe um, favorite one you see when you're out in the woods or favorite one to hinge cut, what, what's maybe your you know, top one or two trees? 
I would probably say I really love evergreens, mm-hmm. in particular cedars. Like, there's not anything – there's not a more perfect tree to see a rub on than a cedar, right? I mean, you just yeah. see that tore-up cedar, and it, it's got that smell, and it just looks – I don't know why. I don't know if, if this is just baked into me because I've watched too many hunting DVDs over the years or spent too much time just dreaming about the stuff myself. But when someone says a big rub, that's what I envision. It's just that ripped up orange bark from a cedar. So that vision right there from a hunting perspective is amazing. Um, when you're talking about wanting to set up in a tree to hunt, a cedar or some other evergreen is about as good as it gets from cover. If you can get a big enough one that you can get up there high and you've got all this thick green foliage around you, can't beat that. And then finally, I mean, the thermal cover and the structure that something like cedars or, um, you know, a scattered set of evergreens in an old field or on the side of a ridge, you know, that kind of habitat for me just screams big buck bedding. Um, so when I found that on this property when I was walking the very first time back in March or April, whenever it was, um, it just had, I mean, I don't know a better way to put it. It just had like sex appeal, like big buck sex appeal. <laughs> it just like, man, Ooh, brother. this is, <laughs> this is what I'm looking at. So this is what I'm looking for. So that would probably be my tree of choice. Now, that, that's a great point. Um, we haven't, I, I was lucky enough to kill a buck, uh, let's see, two days ago. And yeah, funny yeah. you say yeah. that we were coming across uh, an old field and we jumped him out of an evergreen in the middle of this old field. So he was using that as thermal cover. You know, he was sitting downwind of it. That's actually pretty funny you said that. Um, yeah. Very important note there. So good good answers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I want to look into, uh, you know, public lands. Talk about you know, why public lands are so special to you. You've been talking about it for a few years now, probably while you've been working on your your most recent uh, book project. Um, tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, well, you know, uh, parallel to my upbringing as a hunter, um, and the other thing we did, other than hunting and fishing, was camping or hiking or exploring different state parks and things we have here in Michigan like that. Uh, I also took a couple of really foundational trips when I was a kid out to national parks out west. And, and all of that kind of built into me this kind of latent love for wild places. So once I took off on my own as an adult, I started trekking out west into other places across the country to, to kind of have some of these bigger, wilder experiences. My, my wife and I got into backpacking and climbing up some mountains and doing things like that. And so over the last decade or so, um, we've been going out and spending – anywhere from one to three or four months out of the year living out on these places, out in public lands in Wyoming or Montana, um, camped out in an old camper doing stuff like that. And so I just, you know, that's my other half of my life. One half of my life is deer just nonstop. <laughs> and the other half, the, the thing I get to share with my wife and, and my kid now, my son now, is is this other kind of outdoor recreation. So I have this deep love for those places. Um but I started learning that they sometimes are embroiled in controversy and they sometimes have people up in arms about them, sometimes trying to get rid of these places. Um, so 
you know, a handful of years ago, I started trying to dive in to better understand what's going on. Um, a lot of us, me included, for a lot of years, didn't really understand what we had. You know, we have more than 640 million acres of public land out there that you and me and anyone listening can go out there and hunt on or fish on or go out for a two-week backpacking trip or go watch birds or float down a river. Like, these are big, wild, incredible places where you can have an experience that is just – its it, they can be life-changing experiences that are hard to replicate, you know, um, in a city park or in your backyard. Um, we've got some pretty special things here as Americans that a lot of people across the world do not have. Um, so I was, you know, over the last five to ten years, I was learning that, wow, we have these places, um, but we need to stand up for them and make sure that they're around for our kids and their kids in the future. So that led me to working on this project you alluded to, which was a book called That Wild Country, which came about from, as I discussed, me having this realization that this is an incredible thing we have here, but I didn't really know how we got it. I was sitting here hearing about these controversies around public lands. People were trying to sell them. People were trying to give them away. And I'm sitting here thinking, why would we want to do that? These are the coolest places I've ever been. This is where I fell in love with my wife. This is where I proposed. This is where I go to every fall when I have any vacation time. This is um, where I've had some of the most powerful experiences of the last 20 years. Um, and all sorts of people have those same kind of things, different ways. Why would we sell that? Why would we give it away? What's going on here? So I decided I needed to dive into the history to understand where these bad ideas came from and then also how did these good ideas came about that led to us having all these national parks and wilderness areas and wildlife refuges and all that. So I decided to try to research all that, learn all that for myself, and then share that in this book in a way that your average man or woman on the street could pick it up and, and kind of get a base level foundational understanding of the story of our public lands and then, you know, along the way get to follow me on a series of adventures throughout those places to kind of illustrate what's at stake. So um, it would be kind of boring if all I did was write a history book and, uh, you know, a book about this is how we got this, you know, this national park. This is how we got the wilderness area system. This is why we have funding for conservation programs. But if you take all that information and you fold it into a series of adventures, hunting trips, backpacking trips, rafting trips, climbing trips, um, if you blend it into a story, it becomes much more interesting. And that's what I try to do with this book. And that's that's what we have out there now today. Yeah, I just got my hardcover copy from Amazon a couple of days ago. I'm about half halfway through it, and uh, just so many of your references really struck home with me. I mean, the one example that you made about Niagara Falls being an example of commercialization gone wrong. Mm, being yeah. in Pennsylvania, I've, I've gone up there all my life as a kid, and I never even really thought of it that way. And I've been out to the Grand Canyon, and when I read that in your book, I thought to myself, imagine what the Grand Canyon would look like with hotels and buildings all around it like Niagara Falls. That, right. that wouldn't be, you know, any good for any of us or any of our future generations. And that's that's one thing that grabbed me right away, and I just thought, 
if, if I didn't get anything else out of the book, that that's something that's going to stick with me forever. That's a great point. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really special places out there that if if some very forward thinking people hadn't put these protections in place, they would just be covered up with houses and hotels and tourist shops because that's that's what we do, right? I mean, I mean. All of us, we're trying to make a buck. We're trying to pay our bills. We're, you know, just we're part of civilization today, which is go, 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 grow, grow, grow. Mm-hmm. And that leads to what we see at Niagara Falls, what you see in Las Vegas, what you see, you know, spreading out word of every city nowadays. All of our favorite little hunting spots are getting gobbled up by housing developments and new auto repair store or Walmart or Dollar General, right? I mean, we're all seeing that. Um, sure. So, so I count ourselves lucky that hundred and some years ago, some of the people said, "You know what? Yes, that's all important and good, having these things growing, having homes and malls and stores and all that." But there are also some places that we need to leave as they are now, because a hundred years from now, Mark and Jared and Bob down the street and so and so here and there, they're going to need to every once in a while they'll get away from the craziness of modern day life and go somewhere where it's quiet. Go somewhere where they can look out across the Grand Canyon and feel small. Walk into a mountain valley and it'd be dark outside and you just don't know what that crack is as you're walking down the path because it could be a bear. That kind of thing, uh, it's good for you. And it wouldn't be possible for many of us if we didn't have these public places. Right, for sure. Yeah, well, I, I well said. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, and, and if everybody who's listening likes, you know, here in Mark's podcast or, or this episode, Mark also did the uh, audio version, which is what I ended up purchasing. So it's just like listening to you right now, Mark. <laughs> you, uh, I, I, I hope, yeah, people like, if people like listening to me, they'll like the audio book, I guess. If you don't like listening to my podcast, don't buy the book. It'll drive you nuts. All right. I thought it was, uh, it was, it was well done so far. I'm not quite as far as Brian, but you have, you know, great metaphors and, and the, your use of adjectives and all that is very well done. So I'm enjoying it. And like you said, it's, it's an easier way to, to tell a history lesson, if you will, with some of your experiences in there, you know, the buffalo and the, and the fly fishing. So. You know, I'm enjoying it so far. Very nice. Well, thank you. I appreciate you guys uh, checking it out. It was a lot of work. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, but it's uh, it's the most fulfilling thing I've done to this point, too. So so I'm proud of that. Yeah, you should be. You did a really good job of um, interweaving the history and uh, digging into a lot of details. I I had come across some of this, but you really went into the details of the the uh, individuals and, and how these different things came about for getting our parks and national forests and everything else. Uh, like there's so many designations. I think everybody thinks, you know, they think out West, everything's just a national park or a national right. monument, but there's, there's so many different distinctions and you do a great job of explaining that. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot out there that, especially for those of us that don't live in the middle of these areas, especially the West, that are so rich with public lands. Um, you know, we're just not – we're not seeing that kind of stuff in our daily life. So it's easy to not realize that there's something very different about a national park versus a wilderness area or a national wildlife refuge versus a national monument. 
um, and what that means to the land and what that means for how you can use it and what that means for how it's managed. Um, there's, there's a lot out there, and it can be kind of hard to keep track of. Um, right. So I, I tried to I tried to um, make uh, make sense of it for folks and make it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and uh, that's it's kind of a, a great way for us to start to get thinking about where do we go next. I mean, another excerpt from your book uh, you talked about finding yourself squarely in the middle as an independent, gun-owning, pro-hunting, nature-loving, free-thinking conservationist with neither political party representing you. I think a lot of us are finding ourselves in that situation now, and we're starting to think differently and more critically about what our next steps are going to be here. Yeah, that's that's the trick, right, is figuring out how do we how do we advocate for our interests in the things that we care about as hunters or anglers or outdoor enthusiasts. Um, unfortunately, there, there, at least in my opinion, there isn't any one political party out there or presidential candidate or anyone who perfectly represents the things that, that I care about at least. Um, so the only way I can make sense of it is to make a ruckus on the issues that I care about and tell just about every representative, senator, presidential candidate, anyone who might be out there who might take office that, hey, you had better listen to us 13 or 12 million hunters and us 30-some million anglers and another however many million campers or hikers or whatever it is that, you know, we do need to have some open space. We do need to have these public lands. We do need to have the right to hunt and the right to bear arms. We do need to prioritize clean air and clean water and keep some viable wildlife populations out there. Um, at least for me, those are things that are really important. So rather than me saying, oh, I'm a Republican or saying, oh, I'm a Democrat or whatever, I'm going to be pro hunting, fishing and outdoors. And, uh, and I'll give anyone who supports those things a thumbs up and I will kick someone in the butt who denigrates any one of those things. Yeah, I, I think that's really important for people to remember also that it doesn't stop at the ballot box. We need to hold them accountable, like you said, stay on them, contact them. I mean, they work for us. We have their phone numbers. We have their emails. Yeah. We know where their offices are. We need to stay proactive on this because we got to protect this. Yes, absolutely. And that and that applies, you know, to public land issues but also private land issues. There's a lot of stuff, you know. For folks that are looking to buy a piece of ground someday or who care about you know, the, the health of wildlife populations here in Michigan or elsewhere, things you know, out there like the Farm Bill can dramatically impact uh, what we've got going on in private land, dramatically can impact the programs that we can take advantage of when we're trying to manage our properties for wildlife or hunting or whatnot. Um, sure. So just trying to get kind of tapped in to that and staying tuned in to the different issues and policies and legislation out there that can impact our hunting and fishing and, and the environment and the outdoors and public lands. Step one is just getting tapped into that, paying attention. And then step two is doing exactly what you said, um, placing phone calls, sending emails, making making our presence known. As simple as it is, it makes a difference. For sure. Is there anything else you want to touch on about the book and uh, let our listeners know where they can get it to? Yeah, I feel like we kind of cover the basics of it. It is, um, 
you know, it's, it's a story of the past, present, and future of America's public lands. And it is told through a series of my own adventures out on those public lands. I caribou hunted in Alaska. I fly fished in Yellowstone National Park. I've pack rafted down a river in the Bob Marshall Wilderness of Montana. I've peak bagged in Nevada. I've shed hunted in western North Dakota. Uh, backpacked in Picture Rocks of northern Michigan. A whole bunch of different stuff like that is covered in the book. Um, and if you're interested in any of those kinds of things, the book is available over on Amazon or most other places you can find books. And the audio version is out there, too, like you said. Um, I think Audible is probably the most common place to pick that up, and um, that's a nice, easy listen. Yeah, and for everybody that's been listening to Mark for a long time, like Jared and I, uh, you know, the podcast, you can go on anywhere and get it for free. You can go on YouTube, watch all his stuff on Mediator for free. This is kind of a good way to give back to Mark and other outlets where you're consuming the media. Uh, support these guys. Support their sponsors. Keep this stuff going. I mean, it's it's a lot of work. You heard Mark talking about everything that went in. He spent a whole summer with logistics. So just keep that in mind when you're consuming all this stuff. You want to take care of their sponsors, the books that they're putting out, and things like that. I think that's important to remember. Appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Well, Mark, we want to be uh, respectful of your time. We really appreciate you coming on. I mean, what an awesome hour of conversation there. Um, it just Thank you again for, for your time and, and for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. It's fun. It's, it is, uh, I mean, if you guys have listened to me at all in the past, you know that there's nothing I enjoy more than talking about deer in the outdoors. <laughs> it's kind of my thing. So thanks for giving me a fun uh, a fun evening here. No problem. Yep, we are all a little bit cuckoo when it comes to deer, so appreciate Man, Brian, that was a great episode. What would you think, buddy? Yeah, it was great having him on to go into uh, all the details about the projects he has going on. Uh, a lot of exciting stuff, a lot of uh, pretty deep stuff to think about with the public lands and where we're all going to go next. I know that's on the front of a lot of people's minds. Uh, in the different discussions that people have been having on different podcasts and different shows. Um, nice to hear about a little more backstory to the book and uh, how he got started and how everything's come to fruition. Just a uh, great guest. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this one. Yeah, I, I know I did. I think uh, hearing a lot more in depth on some of the habitat projects he works on and worked on this year with the back 40 stuff. You can only get so much into a, you know, a 15 or 20 minute video. And guys like us, we want to hear, you know, the details and and get further into it. So it was, it was a fun conversation to have. And um, I urge our listeners to check out his book, uh, That Wild Country. I'm about a quarter through it right now. And like Brian said, it's a great book, and it definitely gets you thinking a little bit more about the things we have at our fingertips and how we need to help protect them. So. Good point there, Brian. Now, guys, I want to thank the listeners for uh, coming back once again. We are, you know, pounding out episodes this winter. We're going to have some really good guests coming out, including Mark, who's just on. Uh, we have some more in the pipeline here. We're really going to hit it hard, and, uh, you know, Habitat season is just around the corner. So be sure to keep in touch with us, HabitatPodcast.com. You can get all of our gear there, hats and decals. Uh, podcast episodes are all there. Uh, we have a Facebook page, an Instagram 
page and a YouTube channel. So be sure, if you haven't heard of any of those, to go check us out, follow, subscribe, all that good stuff. We really appreciate it. And uh, lastly, to thank our sponsors that make this stuff possible. We have a 5-2 Outdoors, the Habitat Hook, Killer Food Plots, HuntWise, Packer Max Cult Packers, and Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. We thank you guys for supporting the show. Uh, we definitely uh, appreciate the help. And, you know, and be sure to check out our sponsors at their websites. I use the link to all their websites um, uh, at thehabitatpodcast.com. So... Thank you so much, guys. Uh, keep tuning in as we become better Habitat Managers. Leave us some good reviews. Hit us up on Facebook, and we will be back soon with another episode. Merry Christmas. Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country. Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.